Welcome back to Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, today on Dispatches from the Verge, David Morrison and I continue our conversation with Bill Helm, uh, architect from El Paso. And we get into a little bit more specifics around uh, the research and things he designed here at Desert Rain and specifically within the realms of Alpenglow, Skylight, Mirage, and Afterglow, and how he used those things to set up, um, kind of going back to his time as a photographer, uh, to frame how you see um, the Chihuahua Desert here. So, that is what we are talking about today. But before we get into that, thank you to Diego at Recording Moving Studios. He does all the editing and sound engineering. Thank you to Jacob at Monk Drums. That's what you hear in the background. If you want to read uh, David's poems or prayers, check out theruined.com. You can also learn more about Desert Rain Community there. And to hear other episodes of the podcast, drcrpod.com is where to go. Lastly, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please tell a friend. Word of mouth and social media really helps us out. We appreciate you, and let's get into it. Interesting. Um, And uh, and you were asking about inspiration for which drove me to sort of go out and build this hut in the desert Uh, part of it you know obviously references the um the desert fathers and um, the irish monks but in sort of that confrontation of experience in the wild but i was also inspired by having visited um frank lloyd wright's taliesin west and scottsdale um, Arizona, which is not too that, far from here. That place is incredible. Have you been there? No, I don't travel. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't let me into nice places like that when I do. <laughs> yeah, that place, that so place you've is been there. I have. I, my, I've been so to my, Goodwill in Scottsdale. Yes, we have. And we got a Sun Devil, <laughs> saw several Sun Devil t-shirts. Um, so my my dad's a, he's a residential construction. He's been doing yeah. that business. And so him and I went, oh man, maybe a decade ago. And, and yeah. just went did the the nickel tour and the uh, the stories of Frank Lloyd Wright using dynamite to shape shape the desert and you know put in yeah. different different dwellings and buildings is incredible. That's modern shit right there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but it is and it isn't. It's sort of ancient future sort of grows out of its place. It really like is a place that is sort of grows out of the idea of genius loci creating a spirit of place or it's more about what does this architecture want to be that comes out of mm. out what, of the location what's a key word that somebody listening right now if they want to look that up see a picture of that taliesin how do you spell that oh good question <laughs> tally, tally. If, if you if you google frank lloyd wright scottsdale okay, it, 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 it's like a proper um uh, not tourist spot museum. It's a proper museum okay. now. It yeah. is, yeah. And there's tours of all sorts there. Um, it also, 
up until recently was a functioning architecture school. Oh, so that no longer. I think it. I think it during actually just recently during pandemic. Oh, that has, makes sense. Uh, ceased to run as such. Yeah. It wasn't because of pandemic right. though, but um, because the architect school, I think they spent the summers in Wisconsin or something like that, and the in the winters at that place in Scottsdale. So yeah, and it's spelled. T A L I E S I N. In that one in Scottsdale is Taliesin West. Right. And the original was Taliesin, which was in Spring Green, Wisconsin. So um, obviously, in the days before air conditioning, you didn't want to spend the summer at Taliesin West. You <laughs> yeah. wanted to spend it in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. So they would, so Wright would literally like pick up his studio in in the winter and pack it all into cars and they would caravan out out to the to the desert west in phoenix and actually taliesin west was not the original um home they they actually moved it once or twice and it was like known as this the uh, winter camp right and literally the original originally the original with, snowbird yeah originally <laughs> You know the roofs were uh, of constructed of hemp canvas. Oh wow! Over over these you know rocky walls that he and his um, fellows were, as they were known, were building, um, and the open air would flow through it. And that was very much in you know the whole Taliesin West thing was very much an inspiration for my own sort of desert hut. Mm. But moreover. Um, if you've been there and you go on the tours, they tell you at the architecture school, if you were a first-year architecture student um, at the Taliesin School, at Taliesin West, your first order of business was you were given a budget. And I think it was like, it was some minuscule budget, like $100. And you had to go out into the desert and build a hut. Uh-huh. And you had to live your entire first year as a student in that thing you built, however good or bad it was. Wow. And uh, and that was a tradition that that school had. Yeah, because you for would all learn, these years. You would learn a lot by living in the yeah. Scottsdale <laughs> yeah. desert yeah, a, with a hundred dollar hut. That's a mean <laughs> desert. That's a norm desert. So I so you know my my own um, sort of. Um, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, experience doing this um, was was very much to sort of follow in that vein, but then to create a space with which I could observe the site from. And I also limited myself to a budget, but I at the same time I also wanted it to be a temporal thing that didn't last forever. Mm-hmm, right. Although I know David and and folks wanted it to last longer than it did. But so I intentionally made it so it would disappear back into the earth uh, over time. So my primary building material were sandbags. And I went out there and I dug a pit and I made walls that were essentially adobe walls, but out of sandbags where I was just taking the earth I was excavating and I was building the walls from that, but I didn't have to wait, you know, I didn't have to mix mud and wait for it to dry. It was just immediately like, you know, using that as a unit module to build with and Mm -hmm. creating uh, the walls that would form the primary protection of this. 
And then, you know, much like in the vein of, of Taliesin's original shelters for their winter camp, um, constructed a framework which supported, you know, a canvas roof over me, which, you know, primarily was for shade, but as it turned out, also protected me <laughs> right. from the deluge. Because <laughs> <laughs> the monsoon decided to visit. Um, but, you know, what I, I think what I learned and took from that, that sort of plugs back into the, the Desert Fathers and, you know, the Skellig Michael locations of the world is you're essentially creating for yourself a safe place, a safe haven where you're still able to confront this wild phenomena uh, of the site and, you know, experience that push and pull experience of the sublime, but you're doing it from a place where, you know, you're ultimately not going to, you know, perish from it. Right. Um, I'm curious, David. So is it, as an observer, while all this was going on, do you do you remember your your thoughts or your um, observations from when Bill was build, building this and and living in the in the elements? Well, I didn't hang out with him. No, I wasn't interested in doing that. <laughs> no, but I, I know. But you, but if you were still in very close proximity of yeah, where we would check on him, see if he was alive. <laughs> His poor, you know, wife and kids were with us in the dorm house. And so we were like, is he moving? Is there movement over there? Is, there's a light. A light just came on. All right. All right he's good. Right, he should be all right. So, yeah, and I do remember it was, uh, it was, it was a volatile uh, rainy season that, that year. It was right. one of the record, yeah. record rain, record explosive storms. And so I don't know if you ever stayed out there during the lightning storm. I thought you did. I did. Sort of remember one. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he was taking in water. Uh, I think his his books got a little, little uh, absorbed, a little worn. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but we, no, we we were more. You would come in and you wouldn't really talk about the process very much. We we saw the end product mm-hmm. more yeah. so, right? And uh, and a video that he had made and these models, these amazing models, uh, which I think are. On a website, right? Uh, yeah. Um, so, bringing it into <laughs> the real world, it's <laughs> numinousspace.com. N U M I N O U S S P A C E dot com. Yeah, that'll get you there. That'll get you to the research. Um, and to be able to see um, the design that sort of ensued from that. So, you know, taking these experiences, and it was a whole lot of documentation while I was out there as well, like photography, obviously, because I'm a photographer first, architect second. Um, but, you know, the experience of uh, baking in the sun as you're building it and understanding, like, you're not going to be able to have a profound experience without protection from the elements, protection from the deluge. Um, and then sort of then trying to understand what a proper mark upon the earth there would be. Mm. Um, The solutions that I came to ended up being very much about intentionality, which is something that's sort of, I try to carry through to my work today. Like 
Um, so what came out of it were four design studies, um, which I rendered at scale in, in cast plaster to sort of be these pure spatial experiences. And I obviously was not building this at, you know, in real life. Right. So I had to be able to operate at scale, but that's what we do as architects. So, you know, if I adequately model a thing at a quarter inch scale and I'm able to like stick my head into it or my eye into it and experience it, it's going to translate as an experience for me studying it to full scale if I were to actually build it. Mm. So I started at like a quarter inch scale designing these uh, four elements. And that was really a process of fabrication and understanding how to carve a pure space. And each of these four elements then was dealing with four phenomena of the site that I gathered during the stay in the desert hut. And, um, and then ultimately in the final sort of, uh, rendering of these spaces at a smaller scale, at the site scale, um, each one was engaging a specific time of day. And that's where the intentionality comes to it in that, um, you, it would require to actually experience the space an intention of being there at the, you know, two hour window of each day that it's going to elicit the response to the phenomenon that it's focused upon. And, um, some of these dealt with light, some of them dealt with heat. Um, but the one I focused on the most was light. So, so what were the four? So it was light, heat, and what were the other? So, and also there's sort of an aspect of photography that comes back into the research and the way that I designed these spaces. So ultimately this like attempt to create these, these pure spatial voids that were framing elements of the site were intended to be to somewhat function as cameras to the site. They're framing very specific views into um, either an aspect of the, the site or, or the phenomena around it. So, and it was specific views also connected to specific times yes. through the day, right? Right, yeah. exactly. So the four were labeled out, uh, afterglow, mirage, skylight, and alpenglow. What was that last one? Alpenglow. And let's work our way backwards then, because alpenglow starts in the morning. Okay. So at least in the phenomena that I was capturing here. Alpenglow is a term, I don't even know who came up with this. It was probably a photographer, but it refers to the light. This is an experience that we have in our particular region quite a bit. It refers to the light that is reflected off of a mountain or a very tall object 
before the sun comes up over the horizon in the morning and after it goes down over the horizon at sunset. So that beautiful purplish red light that's on the Oregon mountains after the sun goes over the horizon, that's Alpenglow. That's what I was just going to ask. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I said it was probably um, uh, brought into the world by a photographer is because I once saw this documentary on a, on a, on a sort of wilderness photographer, landscape photographer that he, that was like his whole, uh, Life's work was based on chasing the Alpenglow. And that's where I first heard it. So anyway, uh, the first space is meant to be experienced before sunrise. So obviously that changes during the year, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, within like a two-hour time span right. throughout the year. Um, and the space that was created to focus upon it was this very horizontal panoramic space without corners that framed the view of the backside of the Oregon mountains, which is the view we have here, mm -hmm. uh, of the backside of the Oregon mountains that would capture that morning light as it does every day before the sun comes So it would be a little bit north, what, west-ish? Yeah, it would, it, it was, um, and so the way that we organized or I organized these on the site was the ones in the morning were on the right side of the site and they sort of rotated around the south mm. of the site um, as, as each one experienced a different time during the day. So the one on the, on the far east side of the site was actually oriented towards a view to the, to the northwest. But so, they're, so essentially like their view paths are crossing each other. Oh, okay. Um, as they sort of rotate around the south end of the site. Um, the other thing that once I went from like the quarter inch scale to the site scale, trying to understand what these, how these things needed to be orchestrated was part of it, part of the design exercise was trying to figure out if I'm a person inhabiting this space, what do I have to do to the approach of the space to make it like the walk up to Assisi. Mm. How is the approach to the space like putting you in the right place? To open up to that contemplative right. sub, uh, sublime feeling. Yeah. And then once you've occupied the space and you're in there, it's also a protection of the sun behind you, which is coming up behind you in the case of Alpenglow. So in the Alpenglow, um, design exercise. There was a whole sort of path sequence that took you up into the space. It sat up on pilasters off the desert floor um, so that you were looking over the top of the vegetation because mm. we have a very distinct landscape here where we have these mounds. They're not really sand dunes, but they're sort of sand dunes caused by the gathering of sand around the vegetation the mesquites and um so it would it it would bring you up into this sequence where you're stepping up off the desert floor and then once you step into this space um you get this you're you get this reveal when you come around the corner of this very telescopic view of the mountains which is just like putting the mountains right in front of you 
So then the next space, as we sort of move from east to west across the site, was a space I created called Skylight. And it was um, it was intended to focus on the gradation of light from, you know, straight above you, the deepest of blues in our skies here in the desert, to how that transitions to the horizon, which is then a muted view of that skylight. And so this was a very sort of pure space. It had corners, but it was a pure space that focused you on a very narrow slit of sky from horizon up until, you know, up until the center point of the sky. And this is a much larger space. It sits closer to the desert floor. Um, and how, how wide or how thick would that slit have been? Uh, only a couple of feet. Okay. Um, I think it's, well, now looking at it at scale, it was probably two to four feet. Right. So it's a very targeted view. Mm -hmm. And I also put in its alignment on purpose another mark of man on the horizon, which was this um, water tower that was off in the mm, distance. Yep. Um, it's still there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which gives you sort of an element of measure within the view to juxtapose off the sky. Um, and so then that was more of a midday uh, experience, experience that needed to be seen in midday, which was, you know, 11 to 1, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. throughout the year. And what was that one called again? Skylight. Skylight. And so what I discovered there, as far as the approach, was to keep from, and, and so all of these got modeled digitally as well, so that I could study the solar angles. Oh, okay. Like, um, so when the, so as I'm digitally modeling, I realized, oh, I can't just like build this space and plop it there because the rear entrance is completely exposed to you know, the south light flooding in. So, mm. so this, the sort of architecture of the slit in the sky had to be extended well past where you wanted to actually observe it so that it was protecting you from the light as you walked into that space. So it became this very long, narrow construct. And then the next um, construction as we move from east to west across the site was Mirage. So this is, I mean, we all know the aspect of Mirage. It is of the, the heat waves radiating off the desert floor and reflecting ref, refracting light in the process. So this is meant to be experienced in the very hottest hours of the day. And again, it is, is a very pure space that focuses on horizon uh, also in a way that it's elevated off the desert floor a little bit so that you're getting the clean view to the horizon mm. and you're seeing um, that heat line or that horizon line being refracted by the, the heat of the desert. So it's meant to be experienced 
um, sort of like 2 to 4 p.m. That makes me think of the drive from Cruces Talamogordo when you get to White Sands. Mm -hmm. If you're there during the heat of the day, the, the way that mirage aspect looks off the road. Yeah, and this actually would have been oriented generally in the direction of White Sands oh, okay. to our north. So it's right, Interesting. It's sort of right into that same orientation as if you were coming off the backside of the Oregon's down towards White Sands. Yeah. It's that time of day when you realize summer is trying to kill you personally. <laughs> <laughs> summer has arrived with the, yeah. with the Grim Reaper. Summer has identified Not just anybody, you. you. It's trying to kill you. Right. <laughs> has identified you as the enemy. Um, and then uh, the, the, the final, and what I think was probably the sort of most impactful space was called Afterglow, which is meant to capture the afterglow of the sky after the sun has set, which um, I think which is a fairly unique phenomenon to Chaparral, specifically mm. because we've got a short mountain ridge between this site and the horizon line. So we've right. got like a false horizon line on top of the regular horizon um, that is sort of where the sun sets. And so we have an extended afterglow at this yeah. site specifically. Well, it, it's so amazing too, because it's, it's sort of the dip between the Franklins and the organs. Yeah. So it's not a huge fake horizon line. It's relatively low. So I think yeah. that helps with that, what you're saying, that extending of the, of the afterglow. And it, the afterglow is the play of sort of the inverse of the the alpenglow because to observe alpenglow you're looking away from the sun to observe afterglow you're looking into the sun right. but the sun's already passed but you're now seeing the play of light across the sky if it's you know cloudless but more often here it's the play of light upon the clouds in the sky and so this space was actually carved into the earth and so you would step down into this a full story below the earth okay before you made a turn into the space and once you're in the space then um it's slow the floor would slope up to frame above the view of any piece of earth or vegetation and then there was an arc a vault above you that then captured um a sort of half moon shape between the horizon this false horizon line and and the arc of um this vault above you that was built above you and then that vault would capture and refract the same light on that's reflect the refracting off the clouds in the sky it would capture it on on the vault itself and pull that down into you so it became very much a space where you're like habitating light around you um so if you're a full story underground would the vault basically be at ground level no the vault is, is above okay a full story above okay so it's a pretty dramatic space yeah. you're like standing below grade and you're looking up into the sky and um and this vault is you know well over a story 
above Earth. So it's a two-story construct, okay. more than two-story construct, right. um, that is capturing this light and funneling it down into this space. And this one in particular was inspired by the work of um, James Terrell, who's an amazing light and land artist. And I would have thought by now I would have got to see his life's work. <laughs> But it is still not open to the public. When I was doing this research, they kept saying, oh, it's just a couple more years and it's going to be open. And wow. here we are. <laughs> and it's still just a couple more years. Yeah. <laughs> so um, his life's work is a construct in the Arizona desert where he purchased in the early 70s a um, volcano crater in, in the Painted Desert. Oh, wow. And he has spent his entire life's work since then carving into and creating spaces out of this crater. The Pima Desert, that's down by Tucson, right? No, it's not the Pima. It's the Painted Desert. Oh, Painted Up desert. above Flagstaff. Yeah, yeah, Flagstaff. Yeah. Um, and he funds this work by all the other art he creates and the other art he creates the most significant and amazing pieces are also spaces you can occupy like we're talking about and he calls them sky spaces where they very much like frame a very specific view of the sky and each one of them is different in the way it does it but it puts you in a space of protection inside a space that is limiting your sensory perception around you and focusing your attention in these cases on the aperture to the sky, whatever that aperture is in this particular space. Um, and someday we can all go visit Rodin Crater is the name of his life's work. That's managed by the DF Foundation out of New York. And right now the only way you can see it is if you have large sums of money to donate to the project. <laughs> Wow. You hear that, folks? <laughs> Send your donations down to Desert Rain Community Radio so we can take a tour. <laughs> Even I'll get in a car to see that. <laughs> we'll kidnap you. It'll be that scene out of uh, old school. <laughs> Jump out of the van and throw it. <laughs> go, go, go. Um, in all of his work, both Rodin Crater, for sure, but all of his work, he very much talks about light becoming a physical presence in these installations like that you're experiencing and becoming a part of um he has some other ones where he uses completely artificial light um uh to form shapes in galleries mm -hmm. and we like he'll have this projected light and it's if you're standing in this right position it looks like a cube but it's not a cube um, so he, I mean, he's a master. He's been doing this for, since the sixties, I think, um, at Rodin Crater, he's taken this like to a whole other level. Um, there are several spaces of different types that you can experience light in different ways. There's a hole in the middle of the crater that he's carved which during, this comes back to intentionality, during a particular moment in the year, a full moon 
So I guess this doesn't happen every year. A full moon appears in this hole, in this aperture, and shines down a 600-foot-long tunnel <laughs> and, sh- and makes a perfect projection of the moon in a room 600 feet away. But this aperture is an ellipse. But if you're in the room 600 feet away, the aperture looks like a perfect circle that the moon's appearing in. Wow. Much like New Grange, the ancient site in Ireland, right? Yeah. At the winter solstice. It's very much. One beam of light going down a shaft. And mm. One I've, time a year. Right, I've heard of that one. Yeah, it's a prehistoric site. So, um, so those were the four spaces. It's amazing. And, um, maybe someday we'll build some version of them or something else. But the idea was more about the exploration of what they could be and then coming up with a way to get there from point A to point B. How to use, in this case, the experience of the sublime to create an architecture which... In, the end it's not really about the architecture's form the form is a response to the phenomena to create an experience that brings you to the awakening what i think too for though and i got to experience this i don't know six months ago something like that when we went and hung out at your spot but there's miniature versions of these that capture what you would see at that time of day yeah. And even just that, not, you know, not even a full scale building, but just, just experiencing what the, what the, um, oh, I don't know the right word, but just the, the sight, the vision of what you would see, um, within those miniatures was, was pretty, pretty interesting and pretty incredible as far as knowing, realizing what you're experiencing in that miniature form, um, visually would be what you would be experiencing in the full-fledged form. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked so far about, you know, experiences we've had that were like this, where we could say we've experienced the numinous. After I started practicing architecture in El Paso, um, and I started to begin to focus uh, a portion of my specialization as in historic preservation uh we were um invited to compete for and were successful in getting to work for several years on temple mount sinai here Mm -hmm. in el paso and i cannot point to a finer example of the numinous and brick and mortar certainly in this city than temple mount sinai but probably one of the best examples in the United States of it that I've seen. And it's not because it's a temple. Mm-hmm. It's because the architect got it, like understand, understood how to orchestrate, you know, phenomena and use it to create this experience like Moses had in the desert with the burning bush. Um, and, and, and this is a synagogue, correct? This is a synagogue. Right designed by a Jewish architect named Sidney Eisenstadt, who worked out of Los Angeles, and this building was built in the mid-50s. And Eisenstadt is well-known. He was a sort of 
stark detective his day, but he was sort of known for, and to this day is known for his synagogue designs. Mm. Another amazing sort of detail to that is he donated his synagogue designs to the, to the communities. He didn't charge for them. Um, he had other commissions that he made his bread and butter with. And, mm. and these, he felt like it was his life's work. And incredible. so he would, um, typically what he would do is he would come in and he would do, you know, the overarching sort of conceptual design for these spaces. And then the temple or the synagogue would need to contract with a local architect that would then take it and turn it into, you know, construction documents that could actually be built. And that's what happened here. Um, but you, when you walk into the the main, um, sanctuary there at the at, at uh temple mount sinai it is uh it is like the finest example of a numinous experience i can come up with just the way that he plays with light it's organized also a sort of clean vaulted space like we were just talking about with um afterglow that was also oriented towards the setting sun. Right. And I didn't see this space before. I'd That's what I was going to ask if, if you had experienced. No. I'd never been there when I, before I did and during my, my research. Um, but it's very much oriented in the same way towards the setting sun. There's now trees that obscure that view at the end of, uh, of the temple, but um, it was sort of oriented towards Mount Cristo Ray from this elevated plinth on the mountain. And, um, and the, um, the altars, which they don't call an altar. I'm blanking on the name, um, Bema, the Bema, which is where the Ark of the Covenant sits or the Ark, not the Ark of the Covenant. The <laughs> I was going to say different Ark. Wait, what? The, Torah the Bema and the Ark where the right. Torah resides, uh, sits underneath this giant construct that they call a nose. So it's very distinctive from the outside. But, but the function of that nose is it has this window behind it that as a congregate, you can't see. There's, so there's, there's up high above the bima, there's a window that brings light in in the morning so the morning light as the sun comes up over the mountain because the temple's back is turned to the mountain. The sun comes up and floods down through this nose through a window you can't see and perceive and shines down onto the ark sitting on the bima. And that's juxtaposed against a view to the horizon beyond. Um, so, and it's an amazing space yeah, to be in at any time of day, but like, just the way that he orchestrated that for a certain time of day. And so my, my guess is he would have to come spend time at the physical place yeah, to be able to gather these little intricate details to incorporate in his designs. Right. And so that's sort of the point, right? Like you can't, it would be very difficult to come to that realization without being on the site, sitting there experiencing what you're trying to capture in brick and mortar 
at the end of the day. Like you have to understand it and sort of breathe it in. Mm-hmm. Another um, great example of this on sort of residential scale that I was looking at when I was doing my um, research is a space to this day I haven't been to. I hope to one day visit. Um, it is the home of one of the homes of um, the architect Jorn Utzen, who nobody knows Jorn Utzen, but you know his most famous building, which was the Sydney Opera House in Australia. Mm. And this um, amazing architect is a Pritzker Prize winner, which is the biggest prize you can win in architecture. Um, basically went mad, drove himself mad, like trying to get the Sydney Opera House built. And depending on who you listen to, he just walked off the job site one day or was fired. But uh, I tend to prefer he walked off into the sunset. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, let's stick with that. That story's more fun for sure. <laughs> so one day he walks off into the sunset the and says, <laughs> yeah, and says, I've had it, I'm out of here. And he moves to the island of Majorca and he builds this house that sits up on a cliff over the sea. So he goes to the site and he absorbs the site. And, that, and there's a, this beautiful co- quote that I wish I had in front of me, but I don't. But it's basically, he said, you know, before I design, I come to the site and I sit there and I observe the light and I observe the way the site is and the elements. And I do that before, you know, I commit anything to paper. So he does this and he goes there and he has this piece of land he's purchased and he absorbs the site and then he goes into the village um, into a cafe and he basically designs the house by uh, he had them bring him a stack of sugar cubes and he built the house out of sugar cubes. Because there was also this stone that was natural to the site, natural to the island of Majorca, that was mined there or quarried there. And uh, so the sugar cubes represented the stone that he was going to use this stone from the place and build it. And it has this living room, which has seating that is also designed into it and built into it. So that you, so he's orchestrated the way that you're supposed to experience it. And from that seated position in the center of this room, there are several apertures framing the horizon of the sea that you're looking over this cliff to the sea. And there's four or five apertures looking out to it. But the apertures are also shaped by the stone into these very long things. Mm. And he built the glass in such a way that you don't perceive the glass is there. So it looks like there's nothing. Just an opening. It looks like you're just in the open, even though you're not in the open. And uh, and then just to add a little more mystery to this, this is like a two-story volume. He put this little slit up in the second sort of elevated story of it that only for a few minutes a day a shaft of light comes through this this crack in the rock in this very thick stone wall 
and shines and glances down the wall in front or above these apertures to the sea. So that if you want to experience the space the way he designed it, you have to be there for just that few minutes of the day where this ray of light comes through that window, grazes across the rock, and, juxt- and that's juxtaposed against the view to the sea that he's also orchestrated. I, you mentioned earlier landing the plane. Yeah. I think that's how we land this plane. Yeah. So that project is called Can Lease, if you ever want to look it up. That's amazing. Mallorca. Jorn the mad architect that <laughs> disappeared into the sunset. Australia As, will do that to you. As geniuses should. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to... Oh, thank you so much for joining there? us. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Good times. That was fun. Um, Do you want to plug your stuff? Sure. I'm uh, in my current job now that I'm no longer truck driving. (laughs) Retired truck driver. Trying to make uh, men's meet with photography. I'm the founding principal architect of in situ architecture, which also relates. To all of this, I didn't pick that name out of the air. In situ is a Latin phrase that means in place, in sight, because that's how we start, mm. by being in place and in sight. Um, we're now 10 years old. We're 10 people. We're in downtown El Paso, so you can find us at 112 Texas Avenue if you're in the neighborhood. Stop on by. We, uh, we do a lot of work on historic preservation in downtown. So there's a lot of, we've been involved in a lot of those projects over the years and more to come. But um, we also, you know, do a lot of contemporary stuff. Another one we did in recent years was, um, which gets back to this whole idea of phenomenon, framing of views is uh, West Side Natatorium on the west side of El Paso. Is a 50-meter natatorium we designed, which very specifically is oriented to frame a view from a protected place for the swimmers mm. of the Franklin Mountains um, while being protected from the sun on the south side of it. So that's, if you want to look that up or go by and visit it, I'd actually encourage you to go by and stop in and swim in the pool. I'm told... Uh, I'm told the swimmers find it amazing because of the way that you can, uh, as you're doing laps, see the mountain as you're doing the laps. That's pretty cool. So that's us. Insituarc.com, I-N-S-I-T-U-A-R-C.com. And numinousspace, as we said earlier, .com, uh, to read up on some of some more of this research and details of, of some of these, these topics we uh, skimmed the surface with. Um, thank you for listening thank you for your time thank you thank you David Morrison Uh, the drums you hear in the background thank you Jacob Nettia at Monk Drums Uh, drcrpod.com if you want to hear other um, episodes of Dispatches from the Verge or Road to Desert Rain and uh, theruined.com if you want to check out some some of David's musings and poems and prayers and things of that nature so uh thank you for tuning in we'll call it a day